God, now we invite you to speak through your word. God, we are excited about all the things that you've got coming up here for us on the horizon for celebrating moms in a couple weeks and, and uh, doing a yes moment that day. We pray, God, that you would begin to prepare the hearts of our friends and family that we will invite on that day. God, prepare them to uh, accept that invitation, to know that we love them, care for them, and we just want to embrace them and help them learn a little bit about uh, Jesus, who you are, and, and what you've done for them. And uh, God, that you might prepare hearts to say yes to you on that day. God, we uh, pray for Kevin and Grace as they kind of continue their transition into uh, international work this coming summer. God, that we would give generously to, to their outfit fund next week just to help them and bless them and say thank you for the, the years of service here at Bayview. God, thanks for Dave and Janelle and for what a friend he is already to me. God, we're so glad that, you, um, that you've provided for us in that way. We, we, we know we need this as a community of faith, and so we're Thrilled about Dave's experience and background and, and the heart that he brings uh, to Bayview Glen Church. God, now we open up your word. And we invite you to speak to us in the name of Christ. God's people said, amen. All right, many of you know we've been tra- uh, uh, kind of tracking through a series called The Crown. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And on Easter Sunday, we kind of established this one key principle that Jesus came, that he lived and died and rose again in order to inaugurate a kingdom. Jesus came to establish himself as king. And then for the last two weeks, we've been talking about the implications of the kingdom of God. What impact does that have on us, on the world around us? And so two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about creation, the world itself, what we experience with our five senses, that God is doing kingdom work in creation. Then we talked about our mindset, that God is renewing the way we think, and he's taking back the territory that is our brain for the sake of his kingdom. And today, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about how to be great in the kingdom of God. We're talking about how to be great in the kingdom of God. And before we go any further, I want you to know why this message is absolutely critical. It's up here on the screen. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 says this. And in the days of those kings, Daniel's talking about Babylon. He's talking about Greece. He's talking about Rome. He's talking about the empires of the world. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that, check this out, shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Let's just be real clear about what God's up to, shall we? This is what he's doing. So here's what Daniel is saying. The kingdom of this world is temporary. It's broken, and it's small. It is going away like a blade of grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. Just like the Babylonian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, every kingdom of this world will eventually join those kingdoms, and it will lay in ruins. Money, popularity, clothes, Facebook, believe it or not, every kingdom that this world set up will eventually go away, but Christ's kingdom will last forever. Nothing can stand against it. Nothing can overcome it. Nothing can compare to it. It is an eternal kingdom. It is comprehensive and everlasting and glorious. So if I'm going to pursue greatness, if I've got my eye on being great, if I've got an ambition to be great, which I'm just going to clue you in, I do, Here's where I want to be great. I want to be great in the kingdom that lasts forever. I want to be great in the kingdom that lasts for eternity. I don't care about being great in all those kingdoms that are going to end up in ruins someday. I want to be great in the kingdom of God. 
And Matthew chapter 20 tells us exactly how to be great in the kingdom of God. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 20. If you don't have them, that's all right. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use your phone or whatever you need to do to dial into the scripture to have it in front of you there. And if you don't have any of those things, the scripture will be up here on the screen when we get to it. But before we get there, I want to help you establish a little bit of context as we get into Matthew chapter 20. We don't have time to get into all the scripture references here, but I just need you to trust me. Watch this. It's up here on the screen. We're going to build a little family tree together. Here it is. God uh, chose to bring his son Jesus into the world through a virgin named Mary. So Mary miraculously conceived before she had had sex and before she did what you got to do in order to get pregnant. Mary miraculously conceived and brought Jesus into the world. And once she had that child, she eventually married the guy she was engaged to. He's a guy named Joseph. And Mary and Joseph had at least four children together other than Jesus. Joseph being his stepdad, God was the father, was kind of his biological dad, right? And Joseph was the stepdad. So they had at least four, maybe more, we're not sure. Mary had a sister, a woman named Salome. And Salome married a man named Zebedee. And Zebedee and Salome had two children together as well, James and John. Now, James and John became followers of Jesus. They became disciples of Jesus, as did Salome. She was a follower of Jesus. And they literally followed him around Judea. They followed him around the region of Judea and, and, and as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And they said, yes, you are king. Yes, this is you. You're the rightful king. You're going to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. And you're going to inaugurate a new kingdom and establish yourself as king. And they affirmed the kingdom of Jesus. Now, stick with me here because this is really important. Salome, follower of Jesus, affirming the kingdom of Jesus. How is she related to Jesus? She's his aunt. She's his mom's sister. How about James and John? How are they related to Jesus? First cousins. Now, I don't know about you, but if I wanted to convince my aunt and my first cousins that I was the new and rightful king, it was going to take a lot. I don't know about you. Like, even if I multiplied loaves and fish, like next Thanksgiving or something, my Aunt Cynthia would say it's going to take a lot more than that, Slick. All right? You, I changed your diapers. You are not the king. But that was not the case with Jesus. Even those who were closest to him, even those who knew him best, knew that he was establishing himself as the new king and that he was inaugurating a kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 20, uh, Zebedee is likely dead at this point. Joseph is likely dead at this point. And Mary, Jesus' mother, is still alive, but she's not mentioned in Matthew chapter 20. So here's who we got left in Matthew chapter 20. We've got God, because he's involved in everything. It's the Bible, for crying out loud. And then we've got Salome, who's Jesus' aunt. And we've got James and John, who are Jesus' first cousins. And as Jesus is walking around uh, the, the region of Judea and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, he starts to make these statements about what it means to be great in his kingdom. Uh, he makes one in Matthew chapter 19 that, that's a really, really promising statement, as a matter of fact. Let me see if I can, where are my notes here? This is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 20, James and John, or sorry, Matthew chapter 19, James and John are there, and likely Salome is listening as well. It's up here on the screen. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, 
In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, this sounds pretty good to me if I'm a follower of Jesus. Why? Because he's talking about thrones for me. Did you see that? He says everyone who has left houses or lands or whatever. So thrones. He's talking about judging 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking about giving them eternal life. He's talking about restoring a hundredfold all that they had given up. And check it out. They had given up a lot. So to get it back a hundredfold, this sounds pretty good. So James and John, along with the other disciples, would have had kind of visions of grandeur. And their mom, Salome, who was a follower of Jesus, she would have been thinking the same thing. She would have been thinking, we're taking the Roman Empire. And we're taking all the riches and authority and prosperity and influence and recognition that come along with it. Except, except. It seems to me that James and John and Salome just completely stopped listening right where we stopped reading. Because there's another little comment that Jesus makes right after this promise. And it's a a critical comment. Look what he says. He says, but many who are first will be last. And the last first. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. First, and Jesus starts to clue them in onto how into how to be great in the kingdom of God. He's saying being last is a prerequisite for greatness in the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, just a chapter before, Jesus says, In order to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be like a little kid. And kids weren't honored in that culture. Nobody got up and dedicated kids in that culture. In fact, they weren't even named until they were older because the infant mortality rate was so high. Jesus says, you got to become like one of those dishonorable children in faith and humility if you want to be great in the kingdom of God. But James and John, like I said, this greatness thing sounded good to them, but apparently they just checked out and stopped listening when Jesus talked about the requirements for greatness. Don't judge them too fast, by the way, because we do this all the time, just so you know. People throw around this verse every now and then, God will give you the desires of your heart. Everybody know that verse? God will give you the desires of your heart. Shoot your hand up if you heard that before. God will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. God will give you the desires of your heart. It actually does say that. Does anybody know what verse 5 says? Everybody's like, is that the Hebrew? Is that what that is? I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't know what verse 5 says. Here's what verse 5 says. Commit your way to the Lord. So yes, God will give you the desires of your heart. That's what Psalm 37, 4 there. But the, the, the condition, the prerequisite, the requirement is that we would commit our whole lives to the Lord. So just like James and John, we like the idea of God giving us the desires of our heart. But we're not sure we like the idea of committing our way to the Lord. And so we check out. Which is essentially what James and John are doing. Like, I like the idea of greatness in the kingdom of God, but I don't know that I like the idea of being last. That doesn't sound fun. I don't know that I like the idea of becoming like a dishonorable child in that culture. Not now, but in that culture. That doesn't sound fun. So they just check out and stop listening. So by the time Matthew 20 rolls around, and we've got Salome and James and John walking around the region of Judea with Jesus, they're still trying to figure out this greatness in the kingdom of God thing. They still don't quite know how to get there. 
And James and John, instead of going to Jesus, which they should have done and which they could have done, and said, hey, Jesus, you've been talking about how to be great in your kingdom. You've been talking about how to be great in eternity. You've been talking about how to become great when you establish your comprehensive and eternal kingdom. But we keep checking out when you talk about the prerequisites. We keep checking out when you talk about the requirements. Could you just teach us again? Could you go over that again? But they don't do that. Here's what James and John do. Matthew 20, verse 20, it says this. Then the mother (laughs) of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Here's what James and John do. They send their mom. They send their mom to talk to Jesus. Essentially, here's what's happening. We don't like what Jesus has been saying about being last and about being a dishonorable child, to be great in the kingdom of God. And so they go to their mom, Salome, and they say, Mom, can you please talk to him for us? Like, I don't know about you, but men of God, this, you have to be pretty desperate, don't you? You have to be pretty desperate. To, could you imagine at work, like, calling your mom and saying, Mom, I need you to talk to my boss because... This promotion, I really, really want it. So here's his number. I need you to give him a holler. Or like students, students at you know, Tyndale or high school students. Could you imagine if you didn't like the grade that you got in a course and you call your mom? You say, Mom, please talk to my professor. Like I could imagine my mom calling John Havercroft, the chair of the board here, and saying, John, here's the, here's the deal. Lucas needs a promotion. John going, who's this? Well, this is Luke's mom. So you will do what I say. Like, I don't know who you are. Jesus does know who she is because she's his aunt. But here's the deal. James and John send their mom. And we know from the language here that Salome does not do this of her own accord. James and John are in this with her. We know that she doesn't just go up to Jesus and just pull this out of nowhere. They've talked about this beforehand. We also know that from parallel passages in other Gospels. So keep reading. Matthew tells us that Salome knelt before him, that's Jesus, and she asked him for something. And though Salome precedes her request with worship, I want you to know that that worship is not genuine. She's just making sure she jumps through the right hoops before she makes a really big ask of Jesus. Have you ever done that before? Make sure you give Jesus a little bit of worship before you ask him for something. Lord, you're holy, Lord, and worthy. Good, Lord. Did I mention holy? Holy you are. You are 10 pounds of holy in a five-pound bag, Lord. You are worthy and good and holy and worthy. Now, I've got some requests for you. About that test I didn't study for, about this meeting with my boss that I'm not prepared for, about that bill I didn't pay. We need to have a conversation about that. And Jesus, just like he does with his aunt Salome, knows that the worship isn't genuine. Keep reading, verse 21. And he said to her, what do you want? (laughs) He's not fooled. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? First and foremost, what is Salome really asking for? What are James and John really requesting of Jesus? They want to be great in the kingdom of God. 
That's what they're asking for. We want to sit at your right and left hand. If you don't know this culturally back then, the, the right and left hand of a king, that, that, was the, that was the seat of prosperity. That's where you had authority. That's where you had recognition and power. That's where we want to sit. We want to be great in your kingdom. Can I just side note here for you? I'm not mad at James and John for wanting to be great in the kingdom of God because I'm going to just clue you in. I want to be great in the kingdom of God. So I, I'm not upset with them for their ambition. I just am confused that they're still not getting it, how to be great in the kingdom of God. Can I clue you in on something else? Sometimes we don't get it too, don't we? Sometimes we miss the boat on this deal. And Jesus says, okay, in order to be great, here's what you need. You need to drink the cup that I drink. Let me see. I don't even know where I am in my notes anymore. He says you need to drink the cup. That I drink. And in the Old Testament, the cup was always, not always, but most of the time, it represented suffering. It represented hardship. It represented difficulty and trial. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to get yourself ready for hardship, for struggle, for trial, for difficulty, for suffering. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus drank the ultimate cup of suffering, right? He drank the cup of suffering at the cross. And Jesus says, that's where I'm headed. That's the inroad to greatness into the kingdom of God. So get yourself ready for suffering and trial and hardship. Now that ain't fun news, but it's true news. So expect it. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, suffering and hardship and trial, drinking the cup of suffering is a prerequisite. But you know what is fun? Here's what's really fun. If greatness in the kingdom of God is always preceded by difficulty, suffering, and trial, and it is, then difficulty is always preparing me for greatness in God's kingdom. Your difficulties are always, and I mean always, preparing you for greatness in God's kingdom. Somebody say amen, please. Your challenges, your trials, your struggle, your suffering is always preparing you. God is using it to refine you, to shave those edges off, because he's preparing you for greatness in his kingdom. Hear this. Difficulty, challenge, and stress. When things don't go your way financially, when that really snotty coworker that you really don't like gets the promotion that you really wanted. When your two-year-old is having a meltdown in the back seat, better yet, when your 22-year-old is having a meltdown in the back seat, making self-destructive decisions and walking away from Jesus, when you face those challenges, when that boy or girl that you really like does not like you back, when people don't notice you, when you get cut from a team, when you and your loved ones face health issues, when you serve and work hard and give all you got and nobody notices you, each bump, bruise, heartache, suffering, difficulty, and trial is preparing you, listen, for greatness in the kingdom of God. It's a prerequisite. <laughs> <You're>, yeah, <clears throat> you can clout, that's fine. You ever heard of the biosphere too? Let's just make, let's turn a corner. Let's talk about something else. You heard of the biosphere too? You heard of this thing? I like to talk about my home state of Arizona because Arizona's weird. Like everybody's weird there. Like the, the, the city that Amy and I moved from has the highest per capita rate of plastic surgeons of any city in the world. Serious, weird, 
Real weird. This is super weird. This is like a couple miles, or not, not a couple miles, a couple hours drive away from where we moved from in Phoenix. It's the Biosphere 2. If you haven't heard of it, it's a completely enclosed uh, ecological system. It's an artificial structure. In other words, it's a structure that allows scientists to do experiments in farming, plant life, human life, whatever, without having the variables that might exist in nature. It's a completely controlled environment. So inside that thing, they got like an ocean environment thing. They got a rainforest in there. They got farming and plants in there. And in 1991, there's like eight scientists that went into this thing, into the Biosphere 2, and they committed to live in there for two years. Live, work, play, all within the Biosphere 2. Now, in those two years, the research team observed all kinds of things, but one of the things that they observed that's really interesting is that trees inside the Biosphere 2 had a very different lifespan and a very different growth trajectory than trees on the outside of the Biosphere 2. Inside the biosphere, in this totally controlled environment, trees would grow rapidly, far more rapidly than they would on the outside, but they would die long before they reached the point of full maturity. And some, one of these smart scientists figures out why. When a tree grows, it experiences stress that's caused by the wind. So the wind blows and the tree thinks to itself, well, I better dig my roots deeper. And so it does, and then it grows. And then the wind blows again and it thinks, oh, I better dig my roots deeper. I'm fa facing challenge. I'm facing stress. I'm facing hardship, struggle, and trial. See where I'm going now. So I got to dig my roots deeper and it grows even more. And each time the wind blows, the tree is challenged. And as a result, it grows deeper roots and it becomes the mighty oak or red wood or birch or whatever that we would expect. But the trees in the biosphere had no such difficulty because someone forgot to account for wind. No challenges, no stress, no struggle. So they had shallow roots. They grew quickly, but they failed to achieve the greatness they could have achieved, all because there was not any wind. Here's what this means. In order to get ready for greatness in God's kingdom, greatness in eternity, we got to experience a little wind here and there. Think about your life and consider the times that you grew the most as a person or as a Christian. I don't know about you, but I like the good times better. But the hard times is what caused me to grow most. The hard times is what caused me to deepen my roots of trust and faith in God. God uses difficulties to prepare us for greatness in his kingdom. He uses challenges to increase our faith. He uses setbacks to give us courage. He uses hardship to make us trust him, all to prepare me for his kingdom. Now, Jesus drank the ultimate cup of suffering, but every little cup that we drink provides nourishment that we need to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, look at me. Look at me. Because this is, this is something that some of you, this is all you need to hear this morning. God is using the difficulties and the struggles and the hardships in your life. I do not care what it is. The suffering in your life. He is preparing you, you, you for greatness in a kingdom that will last forever. That's, that's different now. That makes us think different. That makes us act different. He's using those things. And, and not greatness in this measly little world that's just going to go away. Greatness in the kingdom that's going to last forever. Now, look, you don't have to like it when the wind of life blows. You don't have to go, well, isn't this fun? 
this is what I wanted to do today. You don't have to do that. But know this, that God is preparing you for greatness in his kingdom. Here's how Paul says it. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We'll just stop there. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to read you in in the NLT. This is the New Lucas translation, okay? The NLT. It's just a little wind. Light, momentary affliction. It's just a little wind. And it's causing you to grow roots deeper and grow stronger to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, James and John, they were nicknamed the sons of thunder, and they live up to their nickname in Matthew chapter 20. Because when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you go to the cross like I'm about to go to the cross? James and John answer in a very brash and arrogant way. They say, we are able. Morons, man. Like not thinking. This is like I just called the disciples morons. I get it, but they're not. It's like, can you, can you go to the cross and do it with joy? Yes, yes, I think we can. No, you can't. The same people that just sent your mom to talk to Jesus. Like, you're not thinking. Okay? But they say, they, in a very kind of impetuous way, a brash way, they say, yeah, we're able. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't think so, right? So verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup. In other words, he's saying, James, you're going to die for your faith, which he did. John, you're going to be isolated in exile for most of your life and die alone, which he did. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. In other words, Jesus says, the Father determines greatness, not you. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Of course they were. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, here it is. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, there it is, among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now for many of us, especially those of us who have been around church for a while, we kind of get this. We kind of get this because we talk about this a lot. Jesus called us to serve. So this can become old hat a little bit. Like church people, we, like I'm a church kid. I grew up in church. I've been around church for a little while. And so when we talk about Jesus calling us to a life of service, calling us to serve, we can kind of tune out a little bit. But, but let me, let me just, just kind of turn something on its head for us this morning, okay? Church people especially. I want you to know what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, those who wish to be great in the kingdom of God must serve others. That's not what Jesus said. I'm going to say it again. Those who wish to be great in the kingdom of God must serve others. That is not what Jesus said. We're going to read it again. And this time, I want you to read the highlighted words with me. You ready? But whoever would be great among you must what? Be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For Jesus, this is not about serving, it's about being a servant. It's not about doing, it's about being. It's not about activity, it's about identity. It's not about what we do, it's about who we are. Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of God requires a new identity, the identity of a servant. 
Do you see the difference? It's not about activity. It's not about doing stuff. It's about taking on the very nature of a servant. Philippians 2 says it well. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very what? Nature of a servant. Not serving. He did service stuff, but he became a servant. He took on a new identity. This is what Jesus is calling you and me too. Here's the difference between being uh, engaging in the activity of service and taking on the identity of a servant. When I engage in service, sometimes I get recognition. People go, wow, you served well. But true servants, nobody knows them. When I engage in service, I volunteer my time. Someone who's a servant does not have any time of their own to volunteer with. When I engage in service, I give a portion of my income. But in this day and age, a servant, a slave, doulos is the Greek word there for slave, human property, they couldn't own any property. They were property. So when I engage in service, I give a portion of my income. But if I take on the identity of a servant, I have no income of my own to give. All I'm doing is managing my master's money. When I engage in service, I can retire when I get old. Servants are servants for life. When I engage in service, I can eventually at some point go home and do my own thing and check out. Servants are totally given over to the will of their masters. Christ followers, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price and we are now subject to Christ. He is our master. We are servants. In other words, Greatness is in the kingdom of God is not about the activity of service. It's about the identity of a servant. When I think about this, um, this idea of taking on the identity of a servant, being great in the kingdom of God, I think about a really uh, very well-loved member of Bayview Glen, a, a woman named Mickey Noble. Uh, Mickey spent her life serving other people. Every day she lived that new identity. In fact, uh, Mickey started a, a, a ministry around here at Bayview Glen called Helping Hands Ministry in order to kind of serve people. And can I just clue you in on something about Mickey? She didn't need a ministry to do that. She was just a servant. She took on a new identity. And for those of you who knew Mickey, many of you knew her better than I did. You know that she didn't do it because she wanted to impress anyone or because she felt obligated, she had taken on a new identity, the identity of a servant. For those of you who don't yet know, Mickey went home to be with the Lord last week. And at her memorial service, they had to panic, praise God, because they had too many people to fit in that little room. So they moved them to a bigger room. Why? Because Mickey was great in this life? Because Mickey had a lot of money or authority or influence or power? No, because she was great in the kingdom of God. Why? Because she served. She took on the identity of a servant. And when Mickey transitioned from this life into the next, what did she hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. A servant identity, not just activity. Seeing ourselves as a servant of God and a servant of others. This is the call of Christ. You don't know my favorite part about this text? Here's my favorite part. Look up here on the screen. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I love that word, whoever. You know what it means? Anybody. Everybody. It would be great in the kingdom of God. You don't have to have special education. You don't have to, like, have a theology degree. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to, you know, be good at singing. You don't have to be good at sharing your faith. You don't have to start a not-for-profit in Africa. You don't have to lead thousands of people to Christ. In order to be great in the kingdom of God, all you have to do is serve. Anybody can be great in the kingdom of God because anyone can serve. Anyone can be great in the kingdom of God because anyone can serve. It doesn't take anything. You just gotta serve. And Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So what's our motivation now for taking on this new identity, for enduring hardship, for serving others and becoming great in the kingdom of God? What's our motivation? And we'll conclude with this, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what Jesus is saying of himself. Jesus, the only one worthy of service, took on a new identity. The identity of a servant. He could have called people to serve him. He was the only one worth it. He was the only one that could defend that request, but he didn't. He took on the identity of a servant, and by the way, he endured the greatest hardship, the hardship of the cross, all so that he might what? Serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve you and to serve me and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me and to the ends of the earth. And since we are little Christ's We follow in his footsteps. This is our motivation for service, for taking on the identity of a servant so that we might be great in the kingdom of God. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Bob Dylan. I don't know if you've heard of Bob. Bob wrote this uh, when he came to Christ uh, in, in the 90s. I don't know where Bob is at with Jesus now. But he said yes to Jesus back then. He wrote this. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or to France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob's right. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to live for somebody. Dylan says this, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. One final question will be done. Which kingdom are you serving? Which kingdom are you serving? Because you're going to have to serve somebody. That's not from the Bible, that's from Bob. Pretty good, but not from the Bible, okay? But, but we, we have, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You've got to pick one. You're going to have to serve somebody. So which kingdom are you serving? Are you serving your own kingdom, your own recognition, your own money, your own promotion, whatever? 
Are you serving the kingdom of this world or the things that go on in the world around you, dictating how you respond and how you live? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Serve in my kingdom because that's the inroad to greatness. And some of us, some of us, maybe we made a decision a while ago that we would serve the kingdom of God. Maybe we got to that point, like, I'm going to have to serve somebody, so I'm going to serve him. I'm going to serve the kingdom of Jesus because I know that kingdom will last forever. But we get off track sometimes, don't we, here and there. We're on that road. All of a sudden, the wind hits our life a little bit, and we don't go, well, dig my roots down deeper. We go, well, I'm going to shut it down. <laughs> got to serve somebody else. Our invitation this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, is this. Jesus says, get back on track with my kingdom. Serve me, because this one, this one now is going to last forever. Pray with me. Just just in a moment of quiet, just in a moment, just you and the Lord, could, could you picture something with me? Just imagine this. Let, 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 let God even put kind of a, a vision on your brain and on your heart. What if Bayview Glen Church, each and every one of us just took on the identity of a servant? Yeah, yeah we knew our Bible well and we pray and, and we do those things. We worship and we come together in fellowship. Yeah, we do those things that the Bible says we, we, we ought to do. The Bible says are life-giving things. Yes, we do those things. But above all, we take on the identity of a servant because the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. So we take on the identity of a servant. And all we did was sought to give to somebody who can't give for themselves, sought to take care of somebody who can't care for themselves. Maybe we don't have an official ministry. Maybe there's no recognition. Maybe it takes a long time. Maybe it's a lifelong work. Maybe it gets hard at times. But at all costs, we say, I am going to serve. What do you think our church would look like in a year? What do you think your community and your neighbors would look like in a year? What do you think our city would look like in a year? I'll tell you this, it would be radically different. Radically different. God, this is our desire, this is our heart's cry, that you would make us servants. God, we're grateful for the examples that we have in our midst, like, like Mickey and others. And God, they're now with you, and they've heard that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. They're in the joy of their master. But for those of us who are left, God, we look to them, for example, but above all, we look to you, Jesus, the Son of Man, for example, who did not come to be served, but to serve. God, make us servants. God, help us to endure hardship and struggle and suffering as we serve. We know it's coming. You promised it would, but help us to to understand that those things are making, uh, preparing us to be great in your kingdom. God, we love you and we honor you and we desire to be a church full of servants so that we might be great in the kingdom of God. Amen.